Well, open your Bible to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to move that. I think that was there from the funeral. Appreciate all your prayers. The babies are still in the NICU, and uh, hopefully they will be home, we're hoping, soon. But we don't have a definitive time yet uh, as to when that will be, hopefully before Thanksgiving. And uh, Caleb and EJ are there with the babies now, and so all is well. They're doing great just what they do when they're born a little early. All right, Ephesians chapter 4. I want to talk to you today about joy and thanksgiving. Really, I want to go through the first nine verses of Ephesians chapter 4. I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. I think I said Ephesians. Philippians 4, 1 through 9, deals with um, a number of things. In Paul in this letter, uh, which is not a real long letter, but there is so much in the book of Philippians for us. And Paul makes several very important statements. They're really commands that he gives to us in these nine verses. And so let's read that, and then I want to touch on those commands that Paul gives to us. And then I want to go through and talk about those. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, let's begin reading. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown to stand fast. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Iodia and I implore Sintuke to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds. That your word would be implanted in our hearts. That it would bring forth righteous fruit. That, Lord, this word would wash us and change us. Lord, wash our minds, renew our minds, and so transform us and conform us to the image of Christ. We ask that you would do this, that we would know your joy, and that you would be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul talks about several things here. I want to draw your attention to this first verse where he says, Stand fast in the Lord, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown. Stand fast in the Lord. This is one of many places where we are exhorted, encouraged, commanded to stand fast in the Lord. Paul writes in his letters to the Ephesians in the sixth chapter when he is writing and he tells us that we're in a spiritual battle. 
And he says, having done all to stand, stand therefore. And so Paul once again is exhorting the believers to stand fast in the Lord. I just want to remind you that he doesn't just say to stand fast. He says to stand fast in the Lord. In his letter to the Ephesians, he says, in the Lord and in the power of his might. We don't stand in our own strength. We don't stand in our own power because we have no strength and we have no power to resist the enemy that comes against us. We have no power in the flesh because here's the reality. The flesh, Paul writes this in all of his epistles. We, we see this thread all the way through. We see this thread really throughout all the scripture and throughout all the gospel. And this is the message of the gospel. But we see this truth that we have no ability to stand in the flesh. We have no ability to stand in and of ourselves. And why is that? Because Paul says that the flesh is sinful. The flesh is weak. The flesh is prone and it is opposed to God. It's prone to sinfulness because it is sinful. It's prone to weakness because it is weak. And so this is the point of our spiritual rebirth. This was the misunderstanding that Nicodemus had when he comes to Jesus. It's recorded in John chapter 3 and he says, Jesus, I know that you're a teacher who's come from God. And Jesus said, truly, truly, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus questions Jesus, how can a man be born again? How can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus makes this statement, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that the carnal mind, the fleshly mind is enmity against God. And so this exhortation for us to stand, we always need to be reminded and we always need to remember that we are called to stand in him. We're called to stand in the Lord and in the power of his might. The things that we face in life, we often try to face those standing in our own strength because we are conditioned from the time that we are born that we need to stand up for ourselves. We need to be strong. We need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I've said this before, especially as Texans, we take pride in our ability to be strong and to stand. But the danger in that is that we can sometimes fall into this trap of thinking that we have the power within ourselves because we have a strong constitution or we have a strong will or we have a strong character and we think I'm big enough, I'm strong enough to handle this on my own. And God in his grace always brings us to a place and it is his grace. It may not feel like his grace, but I promise you it is the grace of God that brings us to a place of realizing that we have no power to stand in ourselves, That the only way that we can stand is in him and in the power of his might. And so Paul writes to the believers in Philippi. And so the Holy Spirit wrote to the believers in Taylor. And he says, so stand fast in the Lord. And then he says this in verse 2. I implore... Iodia and I implore Sintuke to be of the same mind in the Lord. To be of the same mind. These women, this is the only place that they're mentioned. We don't know anything about them, but we know obviously there was something that was causing a division between these two women. And we we know from Paul's writing here that these women were co-laborers with him in the gospel. They worked with Paul. They worked with Clement, the rest of his fellow workers. They labored with him in the gospel. And he says to 
this person he refers to as his true companion or his yoke fellow. It's a Greek word that means a yoke fellow, means one that I've been yoked with. He's telling this companion of his, this yoke fellow, I urge you, true companion, I urge you, true yoke fellow, help these women. Help them what? Help them be of one mind. Now, this is a message for us. We are called to be one. We are made one in Christ. And the Bible says that we are one body, many members, but one body. And so Paul, in this letter, implores these two women to be of the same mind in the Lord. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the oil that flows down Aaron's beard. And it wasn't that Aaron was trying to condition his beard. That oil that flows down Aaron's beard was a picture of the anointing oil that was poured onto Aaron when he was anointed to be priest. The word Christ is not the last name of Jesus, the Messiah. The word Christ means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. Aaron was anointed as the high priest and that oil poured over Aaron that ran down his beard symbolized the anointing. The anointing, we've reduced the anointing today to special abilities to do things. But that's really not what the anointing is about. The anointing was all about unity. It was about our service to God. It was a picture of Christ. Who is Christ? Christ is God's anointed Christ is the one man who is able to walk in sinless perfection and come before the Father. Christ is the one man who is able to bear the sins of the world and to take upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God so that you and I, as his children, would not have to suffer that wrath. Christ is is the anointed of the Father who created in himself one new man, breaking down the middle wall of separation and making the two one, no longer Jew or Gentile, but now one new creation in Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one. He is the one who came and took that which was broken, took that which was fragmented, and made it one in the Father. So Paul implores these two women, and so he implores the church to be of the same mind in the Lord. We can have a difference as to what flavor ice cream is the best. And we can be passionate about chocolate or vanilla. Or we can be passionate about Longhorns and Aggies. Though Jonathan, I don't know why anyone would be passionate about the Aggies, but we can be passionate about, I just had to say that, they won yesterday. We'll see what happens Thursday. Emilio. Emilio with his guns up. <laughs> we can be passionate about all kinds of things. We can have differences. But Paul implores these two women, and so he implores the church, that we would be of the same mind in the Lord. 
And what does that mean? Does it mean we agree on everything? We have the same opinion of everything, the same belief of everything? No. But it means that we recognize we are one in Christ. And our love is not determined by our differences. Our love is determined by what unites us. And Christ unites us. So he urges the church to help these women to come into unity, to be of one mind. We should help one another come together and be one. That is our responsibility as believers, that we guard the unity of the faith, that we guard the unity of the brethren, just like a husband and a wife are to guard the unity, the sanctity of their marriage. We are to guard our unity, to work for it, and to strive for it. And then Paul says this in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, I want to I I talk a little bit about the power of rejoicing. I want, you to, I want to ask you this question. So he goes on, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your heart and guard your mind through Christ Jesus meditate on these things. Finally, brethren, and he gives a list of things, and he says, meditate on these things. So I want to ask you, when do you rejoice? When are you anxious? To be anxious is to worry, it's to be stressed, it's to be fearful. The word anxious is a word that's associated with fear. When do you offer thanksgiving? Today I was having, actually all this week I've been having computer problems. A dear friend gave me a computer. And it's a blessing. But in his attempt to download Google Chrome for me, he downloaded it from a third party. And anybody that knows anything about third party downloads, they come bundled with all kinds of bugs. So I got all these bugs on my computer that I've been trying to get off. And today I couldn't print my things I needed to print because I did them in one computer and they won't read it on this computer. And I'm going to be honest with you, man. I'm walking around today and I'm just not very thankful. I was more frustrated. But, you know, I should be thinking, man, you know, this guy gave me a computer he blessed me, gave me the operating system, the new thing, because my old Windows XP doesn't update anymore. And, but it was very easy for me to forget about why I should be thankful for what I have and just be frustrated about what I couldn't do. Now, you know, in reality, that's just a real, that's a very surface analogy that's a surface i mean in the in the grand scheme of life malware and bugs on your computer are just they don't even rate when you have people dealing with life threatening issues and you've got people that are dealing with things that have just torn and ripped their lives apart but here's here's what here's why i mention this Our giving of thanks is not conditioned upon what is or isn't happening in our life, whether it's very small or whether it's very great. God is deserving of our thanks regardless of what may be happening. All of these things, how we rejoice, when we rejoice, when we're anxious, when we give thanks, where we focus our mind and our meditation. These are important questions that give an indication about who we are and what 
ultimately is controlling or driving our lives. And our identity should be in Christ. This is what Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ is our identity. He's our life. And the Spirit of God is that which is to control our life as children of God. This is what Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Now, our measure of thanksgiving affects directly our level of anxiety, our willingness to rejoice, not our ability, but our willingness. Very often we say, I can't do that. And the reality is not that we can't do that. It's that we will not do that. I can't give thanks right now. No, it's not that you cannot give thanks right now. It's that you will not give thanks right now. And I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of those. may sound like semantics to you, but it's not. There's a big difference between cannot and will not. There are people who cannot get up out of their chair because they have no legs. There are people that will not get up and walk through life because they're just not willing for whatever reason. We're commanded to rejoice always, to be anxious for nothing. We're to offer everything we bring to God. We're to offer it with thanksgiving. And we're to focus our mind and our meditation on those things that build and glorify rather than diminish and tarnish. We are commanded in these areas. So I want to look specifically at these areas of rejoicing. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He says, let your gentleness be known. I want to talk to you about the strength of gentleness. He says, be anxious for nothing. I want to talk to you about how anxiety damages our life and our faith. He says, giving thanks that when we come to God, when we bring whatever we bring to God, our prayer, our supplication, bring it with thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving is necessary in our life. And I want to talk to you about the transformation of meditation. What we think on, where we focus our mind, transforms us. It's not a matter of whether we are being transformed, whether our minds are being renewed. It's what we are renewing our mind to. It's what we're reinforcing our mind to. It's what we are transforming ourselves into. Because where we focus our mind, where we focus our thoughts and our meditation... That transforms us. So the power of rejoicing is the power of joy. Nehemiah said this to the people of Israel, recorded for us in Nehemiah 8.10, And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. These are the words that Nehemiah spoke to the children of Israel. So these are the words that the Lord speaks to us today. And he reminds us that his joy is our strength. Paul commands the believers to rejoice because he understood the power of rejoicing and the strength produced in us through the joy of the Lord. Again, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's what the Spirit of God produces in our life. Now, I believe this. I believe that if the Spirit of God resides in you, then you have the capacity to be joyful. What happens a lot of times is we are people of God who have the Spirit of God in us. We have the capacity to be joyful, but we don't experience that joy. We don't, we don't give ourselves to that joy and and there may be legitimate reasons. There may be things that are not very pleasant or not very happy. 
that you're dealing with. But here's the other thing that you need to realize is that the Bible is very clear that joy is not dependent upon our circumstances. We can be in very difficult, very traumatic, very painful circumstances and still know the joy of the Lord. We most closely associate joy with happiness. So when we're happy, it's easy for us to be joyful. When we're challenged and when we're in the midst of suffering, because nobody's happy about suffering, nobody's happy about pain. So in those times when we're not feeling happy, we, we aren't very mindful of joy because... We're more in tune to our emotions of happiness. But it doesn't say happiness is our strength. It says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And the Lord is not someone who comes and goes from our life. The Lord resides in his people. God Listen, Jesus dwells in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in you is where joy comes from. And so we need to learn how to focus and we need to learn how to understand where that joy originates from so that when we experience situations and circumstances in life that are less than happy, we still have a strength to tap into. We still have a strength to to lean on, to rely on. It is the joy of the Lord because regardless of what happens in our life, God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. We all experience loss in various ways. But Jesus has promised that we will never lose him and he will never lose us. That he is our abiding help in time of need. He is our ever present help in time of need. He is our source of strength. He is our peace. He is our joy. He is love. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This is why Paul commands the believers to rejoice in the Lord always. Do you see that word always? There's not a condition. There's not anything that qualifies when we are to rejoice. He said rejoice in the Lord always because the Lord is always with us. The Lord is always for us. The Lord will never leave us, never forsake us. Rejoice in the Lord always. We are to be joyful people. We are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. And that command to rejoice has no condition, no qualification. Holy joy is a chief Christian duty. Paul is not suggesting but commanding that we rejoice always. For he who rejoices in the Lord always rejoices even in difficulties. That was a quote from an early church father. He who rejoices in the Lord always rejoices even in the midst of affliction. God commands our joy and so too our rejoicing. God commands us in those things that are best and most fruitful for us and therefore most glorifying to him. There's a reason why God commands us to rejoice even in the midst of difficult situations because God knows that joy and that rejoicing is a source of strength for us. It leads us out of darkness. It leads us into light. It leads us out of death and dying and brings us up into the light. Our rejoicing leads us through the valley of shadow to the higher ground that God has prepared for us. God never said we wouldn't go through the valley of shadow. But he did say we would go through it. He didn't say we'd stay there and live there. He said we'll go through it. 
And who takes us through it? The shepherd, the good shepherd does. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have reason to rejoice always. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. And he leads me through and he takes me to the higher ground. He prepares a table even in the presence of my enemies, David writes. Now, come on, God could have prepared a table and and just taken our enemies away, right? But no, he prepares a table even in the presence of our enemies. So are you going to focus on the Lord and the table? Or are you going to focus on the enemies that are around? And I say, focus on the Lord and the table that he's prepared for you. Focus on him, rejoice in him. He will take care of all of the rest. So there's power in rejoicing because the joy of the Lord is our strength. There is no joy apart from love. To love God and to love one another is to know joy. And we are to have joy in love as we are to have joy in all things. To love God is to enjoy God. To enjoy God is to love him. The power of rejoicing. And then Paul writes this in verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. If you have a King James Bible, it says let your moderation be known. That word translated moderation or gentleness. If you have an ESV, it says, let your reasonableness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Gentleness, moderation, reasonableness. Gentleness can be seen as a weakness, but in fact, it is a strength. Gentleness does not mean that we are never firm or even forceful sometimes. Look at Jesus. Paul writes in his letter to 2 Corinthians, and he talks about the gentleness of Christ, but yet we see Christ driving out money changers in the temple. We see Christ, if you read Matthew 23, you'll see that Jesus wasn't very gentle sounding with the Pharisees when he talked to them. So what does this mean? It's not... It's not that we're never firm or forceful. The word in the text indicates a reasonable or moderate way of walking out our faith, not given to extremes or carried about by our emotions, but measuring each response to appropriately meet the situation at hand. It's like raising your children. There are times when you need to be very loving and very gentle with your children. There are other times when you need to be firm with your children. And the situation at hand is going to determine that. In a a person who demonstrates this virtue or this characteristic is a person who measures and is not just frustrated and angry so I'm going to take my anger and my frustration out on my child when I discipline him that's not discipline that's anger there's a difference between anger and discipline don't don't discipline your children and have it truly just be you letting your anger come out because your kids will know the difference But when we discipline, there's a time to be firm. And in that firmness, that is actually an exercise, can be an exercise of gentleness. So not given to extremes or carried about by emotions, but measuring our response. It's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus knew He measured his response always. Joy and rejoicing go to the heart of our attitude and our demeanor and the the attributes that we demonstrate. So Paul here in his exhortation to the Philippians says, let your 
gentleness. Let your reasonableness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. What does that mean? The Lord is at hand. It, it could mean a number of things, but here's, here's what we know for sure. The Lord is at hand, is he not? Is the Lord at hand today? Yes, he is. When is God not present? There is never a time, there is never a place when God is not present. He is at hand. Yes, he is. So however you want to understand that, there's one sure way that we can understand the Lord is at hand. He is always present. He sees, he hears, he knows. The ultimate test of gentleness is seen in what comes to define the practice of our life. It's not the snapshot or the snap judgment or the momentary failure that plagues all of us, right? We can, we can make snap judgments, we can have momentary failures, we can mess up, and we all do. That's not what defines our life. It's the wide-angle video and the constant choices that come to define our life and our practice. And that's what impacts our witness of Christ and his church and the glory of God. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Don't let impulses drive your life. Make your decisions. We can all have emotional highs and emotional lows, but that's far different than allowing hurts or issues or, or things drive us or control us. Some live in depression or melancholy sadness. Some turn to substances to ease their pain. Some live in denial and refuse to deal with the issues that are driving and controlling their lives. That's not, that's not reasonable. That's what the Bible calls being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. That's what the Bible calls being double-minded. You have a bad day and someone walks in and says the wrong thing. You explode on them. That's not gentleness. If you do that, if you do that occasionally, you say, hey, no problem, man. I've had those days, been there, done that. If that's what you do every time I walk in the door and say hi to you, then I'm going to think, okay, there's an issue here. Let's talk about anger. Let's talk about what's going on. Why? Why is this happening? Let your gentleness be known to all men. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And that joy and that rejoicing begins in our heart. Before it's ever going to come out here, before it's ever going to be seen by the world, it's got to be in our heart. It's the same with gentleness. Gentleness has to be something in your heart. For joy to come out of you, it's got to be in you. For rejoicing to come out of you, it's got to be in you. And only the Lord can put that in you. And if that's lacking in your life, what do you do? In all things, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, take it to God and say, God, I need joy. Lord, give me your joy. Give me, Lord, give me the desire to rejoice. Give me Lord, the desire to be a joyful person. Lord, give me the fruit of self-control that I'm not driven by my emotions. You turn to the Lord. 
you turn to this word and you wash your mind with this word and you let this word begin to teach you and instruct you and show you the fruit of the spirit and show you the fruit of, of having those qualities in your life and show you that, that when we react badly or when we allow certain things to drive us and to control us that aren't of God, that are just our emotions or just the circumstances. You know the devil will do that to you. The devil will just use your circumstances to drive you. He'll just drive you until you can't go anymore and you're just driven into the ground. That's not what Jesus does. He's the good shepherd. He doesn't drive you. He leads you. But listen. If you insist on being driven, he'll let you drive yourself until you can't go anymore. And what does he do? When you're cast down, he'll come alongside of you. He'll pick you up. He'll strengthen you. He will nurture you. He will heal you. He'll put you back up right on your feet and lead you on to that table that he has prepared for you. The gospel liberates us in love and so we have been liberated from fear because perfect love cast out Fear is what John writes in his first epistle. Love has set us free and in his love we are free indeed. And in his freedom we can rest and abide in his love with no reason to fear. So Paul then says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication. Anxiety is fear. It damages our faith. It erodes our confidence and it robs us of our peace in Christ. In Christ, we have no reason for anxiety or fear, but every reason to be confident, every reason to be thankful, every reason to rejoice, and so know his strength. So let me read to you what John writes in 1 John four seventeen and 18. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect fear cast out, perfect love cast out fear, for fear has to do with punishment or torment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I always tell people, this is not your ability to love God perfectly. It is your understanding and your comprehension that God loves you perfectly, even though you cannot love him perfectly. God is love. He is the one that gives to us his perfect love. We attempt to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, with all our soul, but we are imperfect people. So perfect love is not coming from you to God. Perfect love is coming from God to you. And when you know that God loves you perfectly, it will cast away all fear. We have no reason to be anxious because he himself is our peace. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are that house, that temple. You are the living stones. Peter calls us living stones that are being built up into this holy house. God has chosen to reside in you. David wanted to build God a temple, but he was not able to. So Solomon built the temple. And before there was a temple, there was a tabernacle. And when Israel went to build the temple, we see in the words of the prophet, where is the house you will build for me, says the Lord? Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Do you know where the house is? You are the house. Because any house that man ever built as a monument to God was only a type and a shadow of the, of the one true house that God himself would build through Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus Christ to be the cornerstone of that house and now you are the living stones that God is building up. A holy temple, a holy habitation. That's good news, church. That is good news. That says something about us. That says something about the grace of God. That says something about the good news that we were not rejected by God, but by grace through faith in Jesus, we have been accepted and brought near by the blood of Jesus. Though we were far off, we've been brought near by the blood. We were the enemies of God, but Christ died for us. Paul writes this in Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If God saved you and reconciled himself to you in Christ while you were his enemy, how much more will you be saved now in his life? He himself becoming our peace means so much more than just don't worry, be happy. You remember that song? Oh, forget your cares. Don't, don't, you know. Listen, the peace of God means so much more than not being stressed out over your daily affairs and the challenges facing you in life. It means something substantially more. It means that though we were once the hostile enemies of God, we are now reconciled to God by the death of his son. Do you know how God caused you to stop being his enemy? He sent his son to die for you so that you would not be his enemy any longer. That's why you should be thankful that none of us are God. Because God did what none of us would be willing to do. Jesus did what none of us would be willing or capable of doing. And so now through the death of the Son of God, we are reconciled and saved by his life. Be anxious for nothing, for nothing can separate us from the love of Christ if we are trusting in the grace he has so freely given to us in Christ. Anxiety damages our faith, it erodes our confidence, it affects all areas of our life and our witness in Christ. This is why the scripture commands us to rejoice and to know that we are guarded by his peace that surpasses understanding. Not just peace, but a peace, the Bible says, that surpasses understanding. Peace. 
Paul says in his command to be anxious for nothing, he says, but in everything. So instead of being anxious, do this in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, we approach the throne of grace with joy and peace. Without thanksgiving, we are left exposed to the uncertainty of fear and anxiety. Ephesians 5.20 commands us to be giving thanks always for all things to God. To be giving thanks always for all things. That's a tall order. It's especially a tall order if our eyes are focused on the thing instead of focused on Christ. As long as we live life with our eyes focused on the things, we're going to find it difficult to give thanks. If we will learn to live life with our eyes focused, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher, the beginner, and the completer of our faith. We find that it's much less challenging to be able to give thanks because I'm not focused on the thing, I'm focused on the Lord. And when I'm focused on the Lord, I'm reminded that I was once his enemy, but he reconciled me to himself through the death of his son. I was once separated from him with a gulf so wide and so deep that I was incapable of, 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 of bridging it. But he bridged it through the death of his own son. Looking unto Jesus, the one who began my faith and the one who will complete my faith. Philippians 1, six gives us this promise. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it even until the day of Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is necessary. It's a necessary ingredient for a life filled with love and joy and peace and all the fruit of the Spirit and fullness. A thankful heart is a joyful heart and a peaceful heart. A thankful heart is a heart that's been delivered from fear by the power of God's love. Thanksgiving is necessary to know the peace of God that passes understanding. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Then Paul writes these words in verse 8. Finally, brethren... Think on these things. And he gives us a list. I want to point out that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, Paul reminds us that God has given to us powerful weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh. But they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds, for casting down arguments and imaginations and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You have the power to arrest your thoughts, incarcerate them, and make them obey Christ. What does Christ say? He says, rejoice always. What are you going to do when you don't feel like rejoicing? The Bible says, Use the power and the authority given to you by the Spirit of God that lives on the inside of you. Arrest your thoughts, incarcerate them, and make them obey Christ. What are you going to do when you don't feel very thankful about life? The Bible says take the power that God's given you by the Holy Spirit and arrest those unthankful thoughts, incarcerate them, and make them obey Christ. I could go down the line, but I think you get the idea of what I'm saying or actually what the Bible is saying. 
In Romans 12, 2, we're instructed to no longer be conformed to the world, but to be transformed. How? By the renewing of our mind. Paul begins that in verse 1 by saying, Brothers, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Present your bodies. He begins with a command to present your bodies, but he ends with this reality that you will never present your body until your mind is renewed to this reality. Because every action begins with a thought. And so here is the power, the transforming power of meditation. I'm not talking about some weird, wacky, Eastern religious practice. Paul tells us what to focus on, and then he says to meditate on these things. What we think on, what we allow into our mind through what we see, what we hear, and what we meditate on, and it transforms us. If we are focused on or meditating on the things of the world or on our fears, our worries, we're being conformed to those things. If you're focused on sin, you're going to be conformed to sin. If you're focused on Christ, you're going to be conformed to Christ. Whatever you focus on is what you're going to be transformed by and into. What we meditate on is what we are being transformed by and what we're conformed to. And our meditation brings about our transformation. And this is, this is why our thought life is so important. Our meditation, the focus of our thoughts, will ultimately determine our level of rejoicing, our level of anxiety, our ability to give thanks for all things to God. It's going to determine the measure of peace and freedom that we experience in Christ. And what we do with our thoughts has a direct impact on what they produce. This is the message that James gives us in James chapter 1 verses 13 through 16. I want to read this to you. This is a sober warning for us to take our thoughts captive before they produce destructive results in our life. So here's what James writes. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Look at the progression here. Let me read that again. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire is about your thoughts. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So our meditation and the renewing of our mind is important because what our mind is focused on, what's in our mind, what we allow to lure and entice us And be conceived in our mind will give birth to something and grow into something. If you've ever been through mental health first aid training, and they teach you about people who are suicidal. And so we have this this idea that you should never ask someone, have you thought about killing yourself? Because the conventional wisdom is, don't say it because you might put the thought in their head. That's the exact opposite. Have you thought about killing yourself? And usually they'll tell you the truth. And if they've gone as far as to have a plan of how they're going to do it, down to the timing and the method, that tells us what is, that is the exact fulfillment of what James talks to us about here. That we have a thought. And instead of just letting that thought pass through, We let that thought stay there. We let that thought conceive. We let it give birth. We let it grow and mature. And the end of that produces death. Now, 
I used an extreme example of suicide, but this could, this could go to anything. This is how unfaithfulness or infidelity happens in a marriage. This is how, uh, this is how you end up making decisions and doing things that you later regret because you allowed things to get into your head and into your mind and you meditate on them and you give them a place and they give birth and they grow up and they produce an action or worse than that, they may produce a habit, a lifestyle. And that habit and that lifestyle will lead Potentially to destruction. It can destroy your dreams. It can destroy your relationships. It can destroy all you've ever worked for. This is the power of, of what you do with your thoughts. I'm not a name it, claim it, mystical, you know. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about very practically. The Spirit of God will show you when thoughts enter your mind, when you see things, hear things, dwell on things, meditate on things, God will let you know, hey, you need to, you need to deal with that. Arrest that thing, incarcerate it, and make it obey Christ. Kick that thing out of your head. Because that is not from God. That's from your enemy. That's from your flesh. Don't give place to your flesh. Give place to the Spirit of God. Don't be controlled by your flesh. Be controlled by the Spirit. So our meditation and the renewing of our mind is important. And the Scripture instructs us to meditate on those things that will produce life and peace. So here's what Paul writes. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, after he has exhorted them to stand fast in the Lord, to be of the same mind, to rejoice always, to let your gentleness be known, to be anxious for nothing, to be prayerful and to be thankful. And he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If we took those two verses of scripture right there, if we would meditate on those two verses of scripture right there, and we would take those verses and in a very practical way and in a very powerful way determine the things that I find myself thinking on, the things that I find myself obsessing over, the things that I lay awake at night, the things that keep me awake at night, the things that seem to invade my mind, do they fit this description? Are they pure? Are they lovely? Are they commendable? Are they excellent? Are they praiseworthy? Are they true? You see what I mean? And the more you wash your mind with this word right here, the more your mind will begin to flow in that way. The more your mind will begin to recognize those thoughts that come from your own lust and desire, from the the corruption of your flesh or from your enemy that's trying to distract you from those things that God wants to bring to your life that are life-affirming and life-producing and lend themselves to your peace and your joy and love. These are the things that we are commanded to think on, to meditate on, not just as passing thoughts. But if you're going to lay in bed at night, these are the kind of things you want to think about. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, who sits not in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law, in God's word, he meditates day and night. That didn't mean that David didn't do anything but sit around and think about the word of God. It meant that in everything David did, the word of God was in his heart and in his mind. And the word of God is what shaped his decisions. And the word of God is what determined his actions. 
Did David keep that perfectly? Read the Bible and you'll find out. David is a man after God's own heart, but he was a very flawed individual. Guess what? So are all of us. But for the grace of God. Christianity is not about your perfection. It's about your desperate need. It's about you recognizing your desperate need for God's grace and God in his grace doing what you and I cannot do. And in that reality, we are to be, of all people, I believe, most thankful, most joyful, most peaceful, most life-affirming. Amen? Let's all stand. So as you get ready to celebrate Thanksgiving, please remember it may be a national holiday, but Thanksgiving is what we should have in our hearts every day, all the time. Our thoughts, our meditations, our actions, our reactions should be defined by the things we've just looked at. What God has revealed to us in his word and what he empowers us to do by his spirit. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit, that you have not just commanded us to do these things, but you have given us your spirit, not just to empower us, but God to heal us of our blindness, to heal us of our deafness, to give us eyes to see Jesus. Lord, if we would be a people that would take the word face value, if we would fix our eyes on Jesus, if we would look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, if we would not allow this world, our enemies, our flesh, sin, to distract our gaze to the right or to the left, if we would fix our eyes on Jesus, And behold him. Lord, you've taught us in your word that we would be transformed into that very same image. And that is our destiny in Christ. And that is what you are doing through the power of your spirit. God, give us a hunger and a desire for you, for your word. Lord, help us to understand that we cannot divorce Jesus from his word. But Jesus is to be revealed to us through this word so that our lives would take on and be known by the very life and image of the Son of God. Be glorified in your church, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.